Do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Berzo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Why are small and medium CPG, consumer packaged good companies, so important for the regen transition? They touch all the parts of the food web. They source from farmers. They have processing facilities or co-packing facilities. They interact with large distributors and supermarkets, and they interact with consumers. And in all of these relationships, they can nudge and disrupt for regeneration. But maybe most importantly, they are nimble and can turn a company around in a matter of months or years, as we learn in the interview today. Plus, why we should focus on regeneratively disrupting meat and dairy and not waste too much time on the very crowded plant-based space. The real innovation is happening and has to happen in animal protein. This is the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast, Investing as if the Planet Mattered where we talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities, and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land and our sea, grow our food, what we eat, wear, and consume. And it's time that we as investors, big and small, and consumers start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. To make it easy for fans to support our work, we launched our membership community. And so many of you have joined us as a member. Thank you. If our work created value for you, and if you have the means, and only if you have the means, consider joining us. Find out more on gumroad.com slash investing in regenag. That is gumroad.com slash investing in regenag or find the link below. Welcome to another episode. Today we dive deep into the food side of things with the founder and CEO of Nu. Welcome, Rafaela. Hi, thanks. Good to be here. So to start with the personal question we always start with, how did you end up focusing so much on soil and regeneration? Actually, this started... Well, I started the company um, five years ago, but looking on regeneration was only two and a half years ago when my twin girls were born. And um, it was six months before COVID hit. And um, I live in Rio and my parents' farm are in Minas Gerais. And when COVID hit, we went back to the farm, me, my husband, my two kids and my dog in the car. And it's a 12-hour drive. And while we were driving back to the farm, um, we could see the difference from um, the, you know, Atlantic forest to Brazilian savanna and how agribusiness impact, you know, the landscape that I used to see since I was little. And when I got in the farm and I had these two kids of six months old and I was running a food company... I started questioning myself the impacts of the company that I was creating, the future of the kids, and I decided to investigate how the impacts of food system. And I remember the first number that I saw was Fowl's report from 2014, saying that if we still do things like we do, we only have 60 harvests left. I know that that's a, a statement that um, has a lot of discussion nowadays, but that was the first time that I saw, you know, how 
um, broken the food system is and that we need to um, fix in some way. And back then, well, all of my products use dairy ingredients. And back then, um, the only solution was to go plant-based. And I was so like, it, it didn't make any sense for me because cheese bread um, started, you know, um, in the 18th centuries and it wasn't um, common for me to think of the recipe in, in, in as a plant-based. So I was confused and trying to find a way and I saw Kiss the Ground and I learned about re regenerative agriculture and that's where it all started. And, and let's unpack a bit. You, you mentioned just, just like that in passing cheese bread, which is the foundation of your company. For, for anybody that doesn't know what cheese bread, I mean, you can make an imagination, but describe to us what is, what is cheese bread? Uh, what is the cheese bread you're selling? And what is cheese bread mostly in, in Brazil? Yeah. Have you ever tried cheese bread? I haven't. No. Oh my God. Okay. So I'm, so I'm looking for a visual, I'm looking for a visual, um, description as we are an Audi, obviously like uh, this is uh, we're yeah. recording this on monday morning um very early for you so what would what would a cheese bread look like how does it smell um, how does it taste I, I need to for people to, to connect I just, I just ate some today in the morning i just baked some but a uh, cheese bread was cheese bread is for brazilians sort of like croissant as in france or like bagel in u.s is the number one uh, bakery consumed in brazil and it was created in the 18th century um, actually, the history behind it, it's so interesting. And I think that a lot about regenerate, regeneration, we don't talk so much about cultural and impact and, you know, how um, cuisine is founded and how it was created and, and the needs for us to preserve um, old recipes. But um, and that's why I, I found uh, I find uh, cheese bread history so interesting, because it was created in the 18th century, uh, probably by um, a woman slave. And she, uh, we used to eat um, bread with wet that came from Portugal. And the quality was really bad. And we would eat, uh, we would pick eggs and cheese and milk and some sort of fat in the farm and mix it all with wet and make a bread. And at some point, some um, woman decided to leave the wet out of the equation and put the base of indigenous cuisine, that is tapioca, that's um, um, manioc. So she used... So switch um, the grain, the imported grain or wheat for, for, uh, to, uh, for an indigenous um, substance and, and then it became, yeah, became what it is now. Yeah. And so th this is so unique because, you know, it took... Well, it was here before Brazil was colonized by Portugal. It was, um, you know, everyone was eating manioc. It's a root that's originally from the rainforest. And that's what, you know, what gets the flower, the tapioca flower, the, the yuca flower. And that's what cheese bread is. It's yuca powder, um, eggs, cheese, milk, butter, salt. It's so simple. It's clean, it's clean label and... Yeah, it's a huge market in Brazil. And, and you decided to set up a company focusing on that. And then how different, let's say, is the cheese bread now compared to five years ago when you started? Like you said, I've been only on a journey for two and a half years. I think that's quite a lot. Uh, honestly, I think many, many people are, arrived uh, a lot later. Um, but in yeah. that journey of two and a half years, what 
uh, what has changed in in the company a, a lot of things obviously but in the cheese bread itself like would we if we compare the two would we recognize huge differences if we look um, them next to each other not really the, the the recipe stays the same and that's one of the things that we do at new if we open our all of our recipes just because you know if you want to do a recipe in whatever you are you can do it so if you go online you have um, the ingredients and the ingredients didn't change um, we used to use a uh, smallholder farmers ingredient and just um, you know, uh, raw milk cheese and all this um, super neat products. But what changed was the way that we do it. That changed a lot because we used to produce in a co-packer. And uh, when I was investigating this impact of the, the food system, um, you know, uh, in the future, I saw that a lot of startups and food techs, they decentralize the whole operations just because it's more... Um, it's easy that way. So then they can focus on scaling up. And to me, when I found, you know, the, the impact that we make producing these products, um, I saw that we needed to scale deep. And that's when we decided to create our own, own factory and to look at this um, made at the source value chain and see how we can go to smallholder farmers and bring knowledge of um, regenerative agriculture and agroforestry and just um, pivot the model to try to bring impact to the whole chain. So that's what changed. But the product itself didn't change. And we launched other products um, also after that. Yeah, let, let's unpack them in, in a second. But just uh, for so the cheese bread, how, how big is a normal cheese bread? Is it like the size of a croissant, the size of a bagel? Is it bigger or smaller? And, and how do you eat it? Is it mostly it's breakfast? A well, it has a lot of, it, it's a lot, no, it's different sizes, but um, it's smaller. It's sort of like... Well, you can see me, but people can't see me, but it's that big. Like know, a coin, like, a big coin. Yeah, yeah. A, little, yeah a little bit bigger. And you bake and it, it, it's like a, a ball, a little ball, like cheese. They say cheese rolls in the U.S. as well. And you bake it in the morning. So you can do it in your air fryer or in your oven. I mean, you just bake it for 15 minutes and it's ready. And here people in Brazil eat, obviously, at breakfast, but um, we sell to a lot of restaurants that eat uh, that put it in their entrees and uh, hotels. If you go to any hotel in Brazil, you're going to ha have cheese bread in breakfast. So, yeah, it's very uh, and, spread. And when did you decide to launch products alongside that? Was it before or let's say after um, beginning of pandemic or your regenerative it, journey it was started? After, it was after. Um, so cheese bread, if you go to a supermarket here in Brazil, you're going to have a frozen sector of cheese bread as big as pizza, for instance. So it's really big. It's a, 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 almost 2 billion uh, reais market in Brazil. Um, when you look at cheese bread, what happened, and that's one of the reasons that I found the company, was that uh, the cheese bread that was uh, created in the 18th centuries and that you can find in the farms are not the ones that you're finding, obviously, in the supermarket because uh, companies ultra-industrialize the product and sometimes they don't even have cheese, even though they're called cheese bread. In Portuguese, they're called pão de queijo. So it's all like, um, yeah, it's the same translation. So um, that was the, the hint that I had to bring back this recipe to consumers. And then after a while in the supermarket, and we're today in the biggest retailers in Brazil, we saw that only with one product, we couldn't 
um, deliver all um, change, and we would we wouldn't be so relevant to to retails as if we had different products. And then we looked at manioc, and and there is this interesting book from Alex Atala. He's I think the biggest chef today in Brazil, and he launched this. this he uh, wrote this book called Maniac. And if you're interested in knowing about Maniac, it's an amazing book. And um, he goes to indigenous um, villages in in the rainforest and see how many sub products you can have from Maniac. So you can have uh, something to drink. You can have something to have sweets on it or salt or just is so wild and, and naturally gluten-free. So we started developing other products with the ba- same base as is in yuca. So we launched uh, tapioca sticks. That's only three ingredients, tapioca, cheese, and milk. And now we launched uh, five skews of uh, gluten-free tapioca pizza. And this line was created after we put it these three pillars on regenerating um, SMEs of, and CPG brands. That's the made at the source, the production, you know, the factory, and product pipeline. Because product pipeline, if you think when when you if you put regeneration in front of any product launch, you just you know there is a wheel that you pull virtuous will um, and that's what we did in the last launch do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle we have developed a new video course for you find out more on investing in regenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below And and this tapioca has obviously been indigenous, has been in, in Brazil forever. Why is it such a interesting plant? Let's say from I mean from the food perspective, there are a million different ways you can consume it. And from a soil perspective, why is it an interesting one that you said, okay, we we need this in more in more products. We need to to get closer to this this specific well, plant. I guess that we are now um, doing, the, we did a project with Preta Terra to find out how we can put um, manioc and, and other savanna uh, trees in the same um, agroforestry and see how this, this root um, can um, increase soil and, and you know, uh, work in the ecosystem. But what we see today that is since it's naturally from Brazil and it's so vast and there's so many people using and producing and um, obviously it's, it's originally from the rainforest, but it's all, over, all around Brazil. We just want to uh, use what's here, what's local and um, see, because today every uh, production that we see here from uh, manioc, it's monoculture. We don't have it implemented in, in agroforestry system. So we don't know um, how it's going to be after we're doing the, the project with Prisa Terra, and that's what we want to find out. What are the inputs that we have compared to wheat, for instance? We don't have that number today. And, I mean, there, there are so many different ways to take it, but how how has the consumer responded? Like, we, we've often heard, I mean, it's already tricky to 
to put organic on, I mean, most people don't really know what, what's behind the labels. And then when you take it to a whole new level, which is regenerative, what have you done on like packaging, on, on communication, or maybe nothing, you just go for the taste and, we and the rest follows? No, we did some stuff. What has been that, that communication journey or that, that, that conversation journey with your, with your yeah. consumers on this journey? I'm laughing because regeneration, it's a, it's a tricky word, right? People just don't know how to pronounce it. It's just, it's, it's not so spread here in Brazil. And that's why, um, it was so interesting to find your podcast and this movement going around the world. But in Brazil, it's not so... Uh, consumers don't know. There are people working in food business that know about regeneration, obviously, but the consumers don't know about it. So we don't put regeneration in the, in the packaging. What we did was uh, we're carbon neutral today. So we put it, um, the foot, carbon footprint in the, in the product and um, some other um, stamps that defines all this uh, circular economy and, and the fact that we are woman-owned and the fact that we are carbon neutral and we're using smallholder farmers' ingredients. But regeneration as a word, we don't put it in the, in the packaging just because it's Sort of talking about yoga a year before yoga is mainstream. <laughs> and everybody looks at you as like, what are you talking about? They don't see, um, I mean, even though in Brazil, it seems like, especially in the agroforestry side of things, it's extremely developed compared to, to other places. There's so much happening on uh, syntropic agroforestry and agroforestry in general. Of course, there's so much happening on the agribusiness on the other side as well. Yeah. Um, but there's, there seems to be quite a bit happening there. So if you're like, in terms of sourcing, in terms of talking to people in the business, in the food business, do you see there uh, an interest in, in, in these topics? Do you see there, um, like, do, is it easy to find your peers and, and people to work mm. with and to, to source and to, to build these products at the end? Because at the end of the day, you're making things that end up on the supermarket shelves of the biggest supermarkets yeah. in Brazil. Yeah, no, it's not so easy. Well, you may have this impression that things are going here in Brazil uh, in terms of, um, you know, agroforestry and syntropic movements because you have some good players, but it's not, you know, just commodity and it's just so huge here. And obviously the, the, the government doesn't put any energy whatsoever in regeneration. So um, it's a bubble. And what we did was to find this, peers, as you said, and the people that were working in the field. And one of our uh, counselors that's in our board of advisors, it's uh, from Fazenda da Toca. Do you know their work? I, I know their work. We have never been, obviously, because I've never been to Brazil, but also I haven't interviewed them. But we interviewed a few people, I think, that have worked there. And, Preta Terra uh, but and just to, yeah. all of them, yeah. But just describe for the people that didn't listen to that, what, what is Fazenda Toca? Uh, Fazenda Toca, it's from, so there is this big chain in Brazil called uh, Pão de Açúcar. It's the second biggest one in Brazil after Carrefour. And the founder's son um, used to be a pilot, actually, from the, the Formula One, one, how do you call that? The car. Oh, race car driver. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Formula One yeah. race car driver. yeah. And he left everything and just uh, bought this farm and started working with uh, regeneration. And now they are the biggest egg producer in Brazil. And they also started working with grains. So they're the biggest um, corn organic um, 
they, they with sell rhizoma, it. right? Yeah. With rhizoma agro, it's in the in the farm. And now, recently, two years ago, one year ago, they uh, they also incorporated a no carbon company called No Carbon Milk, No Carbon Cheese. So it's a huge. Uh, farm working in different fields and their CEO is in our board of advisors just because I watched him um, talking in this uh, webinar and I was like I need to you know understand what you're doing because there's not a lot of people doing this in Brazil and now he's in our board of advisors so it's pretty cool um, and in, in, in the region that we are at 80% of our um, suppliers come from 40 kilometers from the factory. So we are very local. And um, when we started building the factory, in the same time, we were looking for um, smallholder farmers that had this mindset. And there is, there was zero. No one in the surroundings. And this is a big uh, agribusiness area. No one was looking at agroforestry or having these principles. And so we started um, going to the government and to different institutions to find resources to go to at least one smallholder farmer and do him as a living lab for others to see what he's doing. And we were funded by the International Development Bank to do this, um, the shift from one, um, one farm that do, uh, raw milk cheese to do a carbon neutral raw milk cheese. So we're implementing this project. Um, powered by the Inter International Development Bank. But this is just something that you need to go through different areas. Uh, just because we're a small company, we don't have the resources needed to educate and do workshops, but we're we're a voice now in the region. So you much like to be to done now. Yeah. And, and with that one farm, let's say in transition now, is the interest shifting? And of course, with your interest to to buy these ingredients, like there is an, there is an off-taker, there is a buyer for this. It's not that you're you're pushing them to to change to something and and then there's yeah. nobody to to buy anything. Is is it shifting the conversation over the last like as there as you see that something concrete is is happening? Is there yes. something something shifting or is it still uh, let's say it is. pushing yes. pushing up the hill? No, it is from two years to now, and obviously after ESG became big with big food companies. There is a need for um, suppliers and you see big, big companies like Danone or Unilever or Nestle, they're looking for the smallholder farmers that does any of these um, practices. And um, at the last food summit, um, we were part of this uh, program uh, powered by Rockefeller Foundation. And I don't know if you heard of it. It's called Game Changers Lab. Did you did you hear mm -hmm. anything I, about it? Yeah, I've heard about it, but tell me what it is because I've... yeah, it was an interesting uh, topic. So they uh, from for the food summit, um, the IDO and the Rockefeller Foundation and um, a lot of different institutions came up with this sort of accelerator where they divided into four uh, twenty four cohorts. And my cohort was to scale agroforestry, was to find a solution to scale agroforestry. And we had people from Africa, Europe, here in Brazil, and different um, uh, people working this project for uh, six months. And we came up with this idea called Agropedia, 
where as smallholder farmer, and since I'm from the farm, my parents are from the farm, I know the reality of a Brazilian smallholder farmer. He doesn't have the resources to do this shift. So Agropedia it's a, and it's an online resource where he goes and see, you know, I have a farm and this, this is the size of the farm. Um, what's the marketplace? You know, like who, who's going to buy from me? What's, what's the Nani wants? What Nestle wants? Or what this big uh, companies want? And what are they um, willing to pay? Because there is a premium price for this product. And um, so, yeah, so Agropedia is coming. We're, we also were funded and we're just developing the platform to do some resource, to give to some smallholder farmers some resources um, to do this shift. But it's a work in progress. I mean, it's just, it takes long. It's, it's going to be a long journey. And what kind of products, like what, what products do you think, let's say you had a clean slate, you can develop any product you you wanted, I mean, the resources are there. What would you develop to unlock that potential of agroforestry? Like what would be needed to, to really pull instead of push maybe? Um, yeah, there is this number that I always oftenly think that we can eat 31,000 different plants and 43% of all we eat comes from corn, wheat, and soy. I mean, it's just... It, we narrowed down yeah. so much the possibilities that we have. So um, here in Brazil, obviously, there are um, the, the superfood ingredients from the rainforest, but savanna itself, it's in the beyond that we are working in the factory, it's that um, there's so many nuts and fruits and, you know, acai that's so famous in Brazil. It's a super ingredient, but you have manioc as a root. Um, you have coffee here in Brazil, pretty big, and there's just so many resources. And in my company, what we're trying to do is to put livestock um, in the equation because I feel that there are a lot of people working with plant-based um, products, and um, we see from fowls uh, forecast that the consumption for meat and dairy products are going to increase at least. We're going to increase at least in fifty percent. Till 2050, so we need to find ways to put, you know, the cow in the equation. So to me, I'm more interested in understanding how we can work with dairy products in a regenerative perspective, and obviously using um, other resources such as manioc um, to create these amazing, tasty products. Yeah, do you see that? I mean, that is there the pushback as well in in Brazil on um, let's say the animal animal agriculture side. And, and your story or your push there to say, let's see how we use the cow and not necessarily um, and take that completely out of the equation. Is that something that's been happening there? Because I see it globally, like it's immediately, let's get rid of all animals because we need to be plant-based yeah. and yeah. Um, often forgetting that like fertilization has to come from somewhere. It's either from gas or from very, very large scale compost facilities, which we need a lot of time and space or from animals and and i mean we know the the issues with gas especially i mean not only environmental but also political as we see in the last uh, last months like is that discussion happening in brazil as well like what or is it is it more like the animal is 
is still more part of the the agriculture system or the future system of mostly i mean there's always city people that never visited a farm let's say let's get rid of the animals they saw a few documentaries and think how agriculture work works but how how is that discussion when you say i want the animal to be part of the the system is that you get pushback for that or not um yeah so brazil has more cows than people can you imagine that <laughs> We're a huge player. I, I'm, I'm currently in a country. I mean, the Netherlands slaughters, which is not a good thing at all. 1.2 billion chickens uh, a year. So, I mean, there are there are places which you would be surprised about the amount of animals. Um, yeah. But okay, so the cow is is a fundamental. It's a strong part of the the culture. It's a strong part, and we export a lot of a lot of it. But we consume a lot of meat in Brazil as well. It's part of our cuisine, and uh, plant based is it's rising, especially in, in food techs and startups and venture capitals are looking for it. And I think it's a legit, 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 yeah, legit, yeah. legit. Yeah. Legit. <laughs> it's legit. Um, yeah, it's, it's legit. Real. It's legit. Um, and I think it's but, a, I hear a but part, as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, I think that we have a huge, we're missing out a huge opportunity to understand how we can use dairy products in a regenerative way. And um, we don't see a lot of entry capitals investing in this in Brazil. And I just, I, a couple of months ago, I saw that Bill Gates invested in a no carbon milk and everyone was like, you know, so, oh my God, you need to be investing in plant-based and this is not the solution. But we see that, you know, and this is one of the books that I'm reading, uh, Defending Beef. Have you ever uh, seen this book? Yeah, we had it. We had her on actually, Nicola. Oh, really? I'll put it in the show notes uh, around oh, Christmas nice. uh, last year. It's it's very interesting. It's so um, interesting in terms of data and, and and where a lot of these reports come from and and how they are, let's say, statistical, not not statistically, not really well like well founded and never be, never retracted. And these numbers stay out there. Like fifty yeah. percent of of emissions come from livestock, which is. Somebody yeah. once said it somewhere, it's completely nonsense, but it stays there forever yeah. in, in the general mindset. So yeah. um, I think there's, so you're saying there's a huge opportunity there to look at dairy, which is true. I don't hear anybody or very few people talk about, let's, let's, dis, let's um, disrupt dairy. It's usually then plant-based instead of yeah. you saying, or let's disrupt dairy with dairy. Yeah. And, and see how to do that. And what, what are examples of that? Like, what are, what are you working on or working with that is really fundamentally different from the dairy industry we now see, which is mostly inside feeding a lot of soy and corn, even, even though sometimes organic, but still that, I mean, there are a lot of questions to be asked. And then we get a dairy product out of there that, yeah, we can ask a lot of questions about. Um, what, what, what is the dairy you're, you're envisioning or working with? Um, yeah, so we work with um, smallholder farmers that have uh, up near 50 uh, hectares um, farms, so they're not big. So it's good in terms of how you can um, implement um, different systems and crop rotations and, you know, it's easier than big um, lands, but at the same time, they don't know about these resources and that's the key um, issue that we're seeing, how we can bring the message to these farmers. So we're using this um, different institutions to support us. So government, the, the Ministry of Agriculture, Environment, and these different projects, such as the one that I've mentioned with the International Development Bank. But we are also using, starting different peers, uh, other peers that are working with uh, methane and how um, 
you know, cow feed can uh, decrease methane emissions and how we can, the crop rotation can sequester carbon and decrease also gas emissions. And um, the taste of the product also changes a lot. And that's one of really? the key things. Yeah. Um, so how, how did it change since you, I mean, how, how would you... Again, I mean, we're, we're, we're an audio program, but like how, how does the taste changes when the, the milk changes or the, um, the, what the cow ate and how the cow ate? This is so, and, and this is so, we're so, uh, we need to develop so much in terms of how we understand food. Because when you go to a super, when you go to a chef, you go to a restaurant, you know that today you're going to have your favorite, favorite plate and tomorrow it might taste different, right? Have you ever had this experience yeah, where you uh, go to a restaurant and like, uh, it's like the difference, more, I don't know. Um, you just know that you expect that from a restaurant. But when you go to the supermarket and you, and you get a package, you, as a consumer, um, have this knowledge that you're going to have the same thing and the same you know, taste over and over again because that's how food industry developed works, our, yeah. our brain. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if, if you eat a McDonald's here in Brazil and another one in Japan, it's going to have the same taste because everything is ultra-industrialized. And this is the, something that we are putting in the package. This is a natural, you know, with artisan ingredients and, and handcrafted ingredients. And it's going to taste the same because it's not going to taste the same because it's natural. And, you know, naturally, it's not going to taste the same. And that's one of the things that we see that from different farms and we buy from different farms, the cheese. Um, they just taste different. And we have, uh, in the factory, you have a room, a cheese room, and we say that they hear country music because, you know, the wines in, in Argentina or <laughs> in France, they hear they like opera wine, or right? something. Yeah, yeah, like classic music. Um, we hear country music, but just, just fun fact. But, um, we see difference from different, uh, farms and it just tastes better. I don't know how we, we, we haven't put it, um, any lab um, data on it, but it tastes better. It depends. Do you on ever get complaints? Like people saying, yeah, but this wasn't like this package is different than that one. Oh, or yeah. did you ever get comments oh, yeah. on that? Like, yeah, we and do. And then what do you respond? And the color is also different. And I'm like, okay, so the, the chicken put in some eggs that has more <laughs> orange color in it this season. And, you know, that's just going to happen. And we don't like put butter changes color. I had a conversation last week with someone and said, yeah, of course, during the season, butter changes. If you have grass yeah. fat butter or grass fat cows, the yeah. butter changes color and, and for sure changes exactly. fat content depending on the pasture, etc. Exactly. And they never thought about it. You could see the light bulbs going off on like, oh my God, it's actually, it's an alive product and it changes and it, yeah. it depends on the season, etc. Exactly. And like, is that, I mean, I, I can, can't imagine that your customers that are buying these products are off put by that because otherwise they would be going for the industrialized one but how do you respond to that as a customer service like yeah this is this is nature welcome welcome to the season or we send or how some do you... pictures yeah we have this um we have this new ladder called nua and we started eight uh, months ago after we were deep diving in the, the regeneration and we just had this 
mission to inform consumer that everything changes and it's so neat i'm going to send it to it's in portuguese though but it's so neat we have a journalist that goes and interview chefs and go to farmers and interview them to see what's in the season just um, i think that this is a message that we want to educate consumers to understand that nature doesn't it's not in their disposal just because you know they want to it's not because they want to eat avocado every month that they should be eating because it's you know driving overseas this avocado and doesn't make any sense and that's why um the first question that you've asked that's why i think that everything should be local we need to be eating as much as we can things that are produced here and in, in the seasons and respecting and nature when, when you see that enormous attention that let's say the the industrialized plant-based meats get or plant-based uh, dairy and and the investors are are all um it seems really it seems really hyped or like the amount of attention going in that space what would you tell a room full of investors about the the excitement or the potential of regenerative dairy and regenerative cheese and regenerative beef etc or meat in general or the protein side like what would you um, say to your group, like imagine we're in, in, a, in a live theater and, and it's a room full of investors and you've convinced them about, okay, nature is, is extremely important or extremely fundamental. They will walk out to you uh, at the end of the evening and, and what would you tell them, obviously without giving investment advice, but where would they start looking more? Where would they start um, digging a bit deeper or where, where to start as an investor in this space? Because it's so easy to join the hype on the left, let's say yeah. on the right, whatever side you choose, but the hype that is going, okay, we just have to, to build a lot of huge factories with fermentation fats, etc., and And all these slides look amazing. And the, the, uh, everything just goes up and up and up and the rounds seem to, to never end. And, and then we're sort of in the other side saying, yeah, but actually there, there might be another mm -hmm. way and there might be a different yeah. way. Like, how do we, what would you tell them if, if investors um, are um, interested to explore further? I would say that just look at the numbers and what size, you know, how big is dairy products compared to plant-based? How big is meat products compared to plant-based? It's going to only, I know that plant-based is going to increase, but meat consumption and dairy consumption is also going to increase. And these are the biggest sales in the supermarket. I mean, I have uh, one of our distributors um, he is huge. He, uh, he sells 400 million reais per year. He's huge. And 50% of everything that he sells, it's meat. So people are eating meat. It's part of their daily routine. It, they, you know, use butter in every morning and they are eating cheese every morning. So, um, I feel they're, they're missing out an opportunity to go to the market that it's already developed, is already inherent in every cuisine, every chef. And there is a lot of people in the plant base, but few people in dairy, looking at dairy ingredients and, and meat itself. And I feel that we're just missing this opportunity to find, you know, how we can incorporate regeneration, um, in the products they're already selling and that they're in the, the biggest sales actually um, in the retail. So I would just look for this tradition. And, and people usually say, oh, you, you sell cheese bread. This is not, there's no innovation. There is no technology. Obviously, there is a lot of technology involved, um, you know, from a dairy perspective, but also from the manioc, that's the root. And that's going to come the dairies uh, up in it. And we're going to put the product up. But 
um, how many technology you can unfold from you know, understanding manioc as a superfood ingredient, then you can have a pasta or you can have a flour, you can have so many other ingredients and bake it with dairy products. That's what we are trying to do. I think it's a very interesting point. I mean, there's an enormous amount of innovation happening and, and needs to happen, which involves a lot of technology, but going to the, the sector that is already developed and that, that needs a massive shift. I mean, there's no, exactly. there's no question about it, but it's not going to disappear tomorrow, nor in 10 years, even if we completely are disrupted by any cellular ag, et cetera. It's just, it won't, I don't think it won't uh, disappear that quickly. Um, and so we, if we like it or not, we need to change that sector. Just as we, if we like it or not, in general, we need to change agriculture, even if tomorrow we, we invent uh, the, the best uh, modular nuclear fusion yeah. machine that we can scale really, really quickly and we get a fossil fuel in, in a second or we scale solar extremely quickly. We still have to change agriculture if we like exactly. it or not. And, and so it's a, it's a shame that it's, but it's neglected, which should be very exciting for investors and, and other people in the space because there are not so many others, which means you can make a huge difference and you can play a huge role if you want to. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, it's, it's literally... As you were sort of referring to as, as calling in the desert, like you were, uh, you were quite lonely in that place, maybe still are partly that is changing, but it's still there is, there's a lot of room for other innovation and there's yeah. a lot of room for investment and there's a lot of room for technology. And people are like, oh yeah, let's go back to how it was a hundred or 200 years ago. I think they, they really need to visit the farm and, and see the potential of drones of certain light equipment, new robotics, of virtual fencing, of processing on the spot, um, or much more local and to kept, keep all this freshness of um, obviously the DNA, DNA sequencing, following bioacoustics. I mean, there's so much. I heard somebody's talking about an AI, um, an AI use case to help farmers incorporate cover crops. Um, and I mean, there, there's a lot on the technology side to do there, but th th I think it's a very good message. Like go where the opportunity is. And this is, this is a blue ocean basically. So yeah. what would you do if you would be an investor? Let's say you, you're not running new because you cannot both run a company and put, put a lot <laughs> of money to work but, and, and have twins and, and do a gazillion other things for sure. But if you had to put, let's say a billion dollars to work, um, could be in Brazil, could be anywhere else. What would you focus on? Like, what would be the main? Would it be really on the food company side? Would it be on technology side? Would it be on transition finance? All of the above. But what would your your main? Where would you start? I'm very interested in understanding the power of SMEs. They're looking of different ways to produce products. So. Um, there is this group called the Good Food Hub that I'm involved in. It was created from, for, from Ian after the Food Summit. And it's a hub where there are a lot of SMEs around the world. And we, I, we won the, the prize for United Nations 50 best small business and we are all together. And it's just so interesting to see these SMEs working in different fields to fix the broken food system. So I would definitely look at the small uh, startups that are in different areas, just trying to understand how you can produce products in, in a nature positive way and um, not just decentralizing the whole operation. Because that's just something that um, we, when you go to the supermarket and you see everything, all, all this packaging, this is agribusiness. 
You know, every business is a, it's, it's inside all of those packaging. So if you don't see, if you don't look, if SMEs don't look how they are impacting the whole system, um, who's going to do that? You know, big corporations are having their, um, their plans for 2040, 2050, but SMEs can shift it now. And we did that. In two years, we shifted the whole model. So I would definitely look at SMEs around the world. And um, they're usually entrepreneurs passionate about, you know, um, they're climatarians and they're passionate about regeneration and, and regenerating also recipes, right? That's one of the things that we've mentioned. People are not talking so much about um, indigenous recipe or grandma recipes or things that we use, you used to eat, your grandmother used to eat and you don't find it any longer. So I would put some investment in those people. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that sort of layer. I mean, we keep it keeps coming back, I don't know, over the last six months or so. Uh, with Paul Lightfoot as well, which I will put in the, in, in the climate neutral or climate positive food companies, like this layer, which is beyond the farm and, and sort of is that interaction between the farm or the land and our consumer or the hospital that buys it or um, the restaurant. I mean, but there is a layer in between because many, many products, rightfully so, are not going to end up on a farmer's market and we don't buy directly from the farmer because they yeah. have to be processed in a good yeah. way. And processing is not necessarily an ugly word, but somehow there is a transformation going on there. And that layer is so fundamental. And you're saying there's a huge opportunity there but because there are these companies that can shift if they uh, haven't already done so and that have a lot of space to grow because what you see and i think uh, just asking the question the consumer is ready for for this the consumer wants clean label exactly. uh, not every consumer but enough of it to have a, yes. an interesting business obviously it's have rising. you seen a shift there as well yes like the last uh, years yes well there was a um, uh, research uh, run here in brazil last year and said that 83% of consumers want to buy sustainable products, but they don't want to spend more. Okay, so that's, that's a tricky issue. thing because uh, they want to buy from, um, you know, local producers and obviously with impact, but they don't want to spend more just because inflation is huge in, here in Brazil. Um, but I feel that you, we have an opportunity to produce products in a more intelligent way. And we saw that when we built the factory. I mean, it's cheaper to have clean energy, to have solar panels. It's it's cheaper to storage rainwater and use it in the, in the factory. I mean, if you bring technology, but also sustainability and circular economy principles, um, it's going to be cheaper. It doesn't need to be expensive, more expensive, the product. And so there is obviously a shift and I feel that food, food techs and, and startups, it doesn't need to be a food tech, but startups that are having CPG brands, they work in so many different areas, right? Because they dialogue with farmers because they need to buy the ingredients. They dialogue with co-packers or they either process the, in their own factories. They dialogue with consumers. They dialogue with retails. I mean, there are so many different stakeholders they can they change. And that's, yeah. yeah, and that's why I'm so um, interested in seeing how this, this food tax can change perception in different areas. So you're arguing that that's the biggest lever we have or leverage point we have are the food companies and especially the small to medium sized ones because they're still nimble. They can shift around yeah. in, a, in a couple of years or a couple of months if they're very small. 
and and they can grow quite rapidly and, and touch a lot of farmers, a lot of land, and a lot of people, obviously, on the consumer side, but also all the other stakeholders you interact with. They will be, and maybe at the beginning, they're annoyed that oh, this regeneration piece comes up again, or maybe they're like, oh, they're talking again about recycled rainwater, etc. But at some point, yeah, it becomes almost normal. Like you're, you're definitely opening a path there, which is very tiring, but those yeah. are very needed. Yeah. And I think that the key point, uh, it's how much can we grow? And this was a aha moment that I had uh, a couple of months ago. I was with my husband and we ordered McDonald's because we're in this business, but sometimes we drink Coca-Cola or something, you know, I'm not so rigid. And we ordered McDonald's and we were eating McDonald's. And I thought, if new was the size of McDonald's, how how it would be? How could that be possible? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing about CPG brands. Once they grow, they can't sustain regeneration that much because, you know, if I, I, I have a hundred tons uh, factory here in Brazil, but if I go to 10,000 tons per month, I'm not going to have the suppliers, local suppliers. I'm not, I'm going to export to Netherlands and you're going to eat it. And, you know, um, we're just going to, um, Broke, it's a contradiction. Yeah. yeah, it's a, it's contradiction. So then I thought, how can a CPG brand be global and at the same time doesn't harm the ecosystem? And the and that's the theory that we are going through. And that's why I mentioned that we're going for the first round of investment is that we're expanding, but being global, but at the same time being local. And that's the only way. You can't produce here in Brazil and export all around the world. You need to go to US and see who are the dairy producers, who are the ag producers, you know, how you can find local farmers and smallholder farmers and how can you produce there and then sell it there and go to Europe and go to, you know, um, repeat. Yeah. And and repeat. Exactly. So you can be a global CPG brand. Um, and be a, a regenerative uh, with a nature positive perspective, but you need to be local. That's the only way that we found. Is that what you referred to at the beginning as scaling deeply? Is that a similar or is that connected to it? Yes. And, and then how does it look like? Would it be sort of a collection of global brands under the same principles, guiding principles? Because different, would it be different food as well? Because it's it not would even be make different food. Brazilian cheese bread in Kentucky because that's yeah I mean yeah it would be a funny a funny thing to eat but it's not part of the culture so yeah, would you then take the guiding principles and yeah and set up local I wouldn't say versions but like they're almost a local version but in like the local translated version of what you're building in Brazil or building that's so exactly far. yeah that's exactly what we're doing um we're gonna obviously we don't have manioc in the u.s um and we're gonna need to import but that's the only ingredient we need to import the rest of ingredients we can ha- find it locally and that's the part of scale deep you need to find local suppliers for your products you can have a co-packer it doesn't need to be you know you don't need to have a factory but you can find local co-packers and um work with the smallholder farmers and if you're reach a stage as we've reached here in Brazil, you can buy the, you can build a factory, but it doesn't need to be um, a factory replicable, replicable, replicable. Is that a word? 
<laughs> as we are doing here in Brazil, but we're using Brazil as a living lab. And that's why the factory is uh, within uh, 40 kilometers from the farmers. And that's why we're putting the agroforestry from Petoterra. We're already doing free range eggs here. We need to learn, right? We need to learn uh, so then we can teach to other farmers. And that's the only solution we see to scale the, the model um, is to go deep, to go from soil to plate. That's the thing about CPG, you can go from soil to plate. Two things on that. Wouldn't it be possible to find a local route that is, that so you don't have to import the manioc uh, into some place? Like what, what would it be? Ideally, we would try to find the, the, the local route that, that is very unloved, but also a superfood and, and could be a perfect ingredient. Not sure if that's possible. And second, I'm imagining in Brazil, there's so many biomes in so many different regions that are so different from each other that there is a lot of space to repeat there as well. To, yes. to repeat because Brazil is enormous and yes. you're doing 40 kilometers, 80% of your ingredients yes. come from 40 kilometers. That means there are a lot of these radiuses you can you yes. can draw on the map and, we are, and set yeah. up another one. Yes, that's part of, that's part of the plan. And But what we want to do for next... Um, two years is go to US just to prove that we can replicate the model internationally. But in Brazil, we have opportunities to go to North, for instance, we're in the, in the center of Brazil, but we have, we mapped producers in the North and in the South, they're doing great. Um, they're using dairy, um, their dairy farms, um, producing a maize cheese and, and milk. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's the, the knowledge, just have this small uh, production in different areas and produce it in small scale and then you can be and scale up. And if you could change one thing overnight in the food and egg space, what would that be? You have a magic wand, you have the magic power to do one thing differently and tomorrow morning we wake up and, and that's the case, you have done one thing. What, what would that be? Oh, mm, there's so many things I would do, but yeah, um, I know, I know. That's why it's one <laughs> um, But I would again try to localize everything. I would again um, try to shift the way we consume and not have avocado every month and just educate consumers and find what's in the surroundings and restore biomes and restore you know, local biodiversity. We saw that we lost 60% of biodiversity since, um, the nine, uh, since the 70s, uh, after we, uh, grew a lot at the agribusiness. So we lost so much and we came to these tipping points where there's no coming back. And, um, I feel that if we localize and see what is, you know, in the state and what can be produced, there's so many amazing products that, the indigenous used to eat and we don't have the privilege to do it. So that's, you've mentioned about a root in US, I bet they have, and I bet we can use it and it's gonna taste a little bit different, but it's gonna be as yummy, you know? And for us, we always say that taste is queen <laughs> because um, that's the most important part of CPG brand, but I will localize if I could have a magic wand. And how does that, that contradicts almost your your wish to repeat in the US if you have so much work laying out for you for the next decades probably in in Brazil uh, why why not simply i mean simply between markets but inspire someone in the US to do this as well why why do you need to 
to do that, which is far from culture, far distance simply because it's going to be running two brands in two different countries, et cetera. Why, why is there that, that wish to, to do something in the U.S. if you have so much work and so much things have to be rebuilt or built in, in Brazil as well? I feel that I have a personal wish um, to extend the knowledge that we are learning here with new to different SMEs around the world. And that's part of what we are doing. We're in so many forums in different um, United Nations and the Good Food Hub and just different institutions that we're just explaining things um, in the way that we're doing here. But there is a, just a personal wish for me and my family want to move to U.S. and spend a couple of years there um, and with the twins and just bring everything that we are learning here to different uh, countries. And that's one of the ways that we can um, increase impact the most, not only have all knowledge stored in my company, but um, understand how we can inspire and really explain to other SMEs, SMEs what we are learning, what have been you know, going right, what have been going wrong, and all knowledge shouldn't be only with us. Thank you so much for that. And I want to be conscious of your, your time. And I don't think it's the last time we'll be chatting. And thank you so much for sharing this, this super early morning before I think an important board meeting um, to, to share with us the journey of, uh, of a SME CPG brand going, going all in into regeneration. And it's a journey, a fascinating one, never done. Uh, but no. definitely a, a very necessary one. So thank you so much for the work you do and for coming on here to share about it. Well, thank you. I've sent you the, the video of me at Suma Uma in the, in the uh, botanical uh, garden here in Rio, but it was a true one. I'm very inspired by your podcast and everyone that you're interviewing. And I'm so grateful that there is a movement and um, that we're part of this movement um, and so it's a privilege thank you thank you so much for listening all the way to the end for the show notes and links we discussed in this episode check out our website investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash posts if you like this episode why not share it with a friend or give us a rating on apple Podcasts? that really helps thanks again and see you next time